You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Interstate Batteries has been a proud supporter of the Sportsman's Nation since day one. They offer just about every battery under the sun, from car and truck batteries to batteries for your trail cameras and rangefinders. Select retail locations even offer cell phone repair and cracked screen repair. Find a local retail location at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome back to another episode of the Woodsman Podcast, where we'll talk everything Pennsylvania outdoors. If you enjoy deer hunting, fishing, trapping, or just being outside, this podcast is for you. Our goal is to showcase the vast opportunity that the Pennsylvania Woodsman can experience. We hope this inspires you to get out and enjoy God's creation in the Keystone State. All right, we're back again. I am tired and I'm cold. This weather's kicking my rear end. But that's what happens when it gets to January. It's the time of year. It's cold. We've had plenty of single-digit days here. It's been cold hunting. Uh, I feel like the abominable snowman every time I go out or look like the Michelin man or something. It's getting to be so so bad with the amount of clothing you got to put on in layers and trying to keep warm. It's hard enough to even pick the gun up or draw the bow back with the... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the clothing we have on, but that's part of late season hunting. I know one thing I am extremely thankful that I have a wonderful wife that supports me in all that I do with this because at this point in the season, I'm not practicing what I preach as far as trying to minimize the impact I have on my family with the amount of time I'm out hunting. I mean, I've been out as much as as I have any other time, I've been trying to push hard and grind through it, trying to get in front of a buck, find that last opportunity to put one on the ground. I've had a, a couple of nice deer on camera, deer I would shoot, and they were in daylight. But it's just a it's a major cat and mouse game. You just can't get away with anything in late season. There's no doubt about it. So, again, I'm I'm just thankful that she's she knows what I'm after and she's been putting up with it and she won't have to put up with it much longer. I'm sure you guys, there's some of you listening to this are, are probably the same way. Uh, I'm going to try to give it my last hurrah here <clears throat> and, uh, and that'll be it. Then we'll be into off season stuff. And I guess the, uh, I, I guess I haven't hunted too much for my own well being, just because I still want to go out just as bad every day. And I think when uh, when the season's over, I'll I'll be just as amped up to go back out into the woods and start doing the stuff that I like to do in the off season, as far as scouting and preparations for the following year. You know, I don't know that I'm as hardcore as the anybody who says you know the the season uh, the season begins when the for the next season the day the season ends for the previous season. I don't know if I'm that hardcore, but. I do love to get out and, you know, there's a lot of great things to do from January until green up in spring. And, you know, that's what we're talking about in this series. So just to recap what we talked about, if you haven't listened to last week's episode, uh, we started a series and I'm going to go through in a couple of episodes. I'm thinking it's going to round up to about five episodes. I'm not sure that they're going to be consecutive weekly here, but about five episodes, and we're going to talk about making a 180 on a property. Uh, and I say 180 on a, on a deer hunting property that you're just not quite meeting your goals and expectations, or you, or maybe you want to take it to the next level if you're not quite there yet. 
And last week's episode was the foundation. I mean, I'll, I'll probably keep referring back to the series because you, you can't you can't take it all and, you know, get the pieces of the puzzle together with, without all the pieces. Um, you know, I think last week's episode was a foundation. Last week we talked about conceptual access, um, you know, mind, keeping in your mind how you need to access your property and maximize your property efficiency. And I'm, and I'm talking about maximizing your property efficiency. We're talking about maximizing the amount of property where deer cannot see you, hear you, or smell you. What I'm really referring to and what I referred to last week, I didn't use the word, but what I'm referring to is a sanctuary. Now, quality deer management, and you know, you've probably read articles, you've listened to people talking about having a sanctuary in your property. <clears throat> and I personally learned the hard way of what that actually means of having a sanctuary on your property. So just to recap, there's a, there's a common conception or a common belief or practice, whatever you want to call it, to have a sanctuary on your property. And it's a portion of your property. Most of the time, it's a portion of your property that you don't go into unless it's to go get a deer. And the idea is that you have a, a, a security zone on your prop on your property. So, you know, for a lot of properties I've seen, you know, it might be, let's say it's a 40 acre property <clears throat> and the, the, the sanctuary might be 10 acres. You know, maybe it's a corner, maybe it's the middle, whatever, it depends on the property layout. And that's what we kind of talked about last week was you have to vary your, your efficiency, as we so called it, by how your property lays out and what potential you have to access. Not all properties are 100% efficient, <clears throat> but anyway, when you set up a sanctuary on your property, it may have the potential to set up one or two really dynamite stand locations, but it might bottleneck you down to one specific wind or you're, it's really going to increase the potential to overhunt certain areas. And what I've commonly seen is these sanctuaries might not necessarily be treated as a sanctuary because at some point you often access around the sanctuary that you'll allow your wind to blow into it or your, your, your scent to blow into it. And, you know, think about it. If you have a 40 acre property and only 10 acres is a sanctuary or even 20 acres, even if you make half of it a quote unquote sanctuary, you're still not giving them full potential. I mean, think about what 20 acres is a, a square acre is 43,560 square feet. <clears throat> so that's literally like, like it's a little bit over 200 feet by 200 feet is what it comes out to. What you think about how big that is, it's really not a big area. So do that times 20. And, you know, you think about the potential of how far a deer can see you, hear you, or smell you. It's it's really not that big. So <clears throat> you can easily be creating delusions for yourself that you have this sanctuary on your property, but depending on how it act, you know, sets up with access, you can really be creating a delusion for yourself. You might have some decent stands, but uh, what I've often found is it, it's creating a, a, a major misconception of how the rest of your property should be accessed and should be hunted. And I, I'll just give you a kind of an example. The, the property we hunt, we used to have um, what we considered to be <clears throat> maybe a 50-acre sanctuary. But the way we were accessing, which we talked about ac accessing with ATVs last week, and that was a no-no. So access, uh, the way we went to some stands, you know, maybe it made sense the way we were talking about. We were watching the wind when we were on stand. We were trying to watch how we access. We had cleared trails that we tried to keep quiet. But <clears throat> as the season went on and on, we saw fewer and fewer deer. We definitely saw fewer and fewer mature buck. And there's a lot of reasons, and I'm not going to, bore you to death with it but we were sitting on the outside waiting for deer to come out of those sanctuaries and it's it's interesting because we had some rough seasons and i'll never forget the end of muzzleloader season one year we thought you know let's see how many deer are really in there and make a drive and hardly anything came out so yeah i know we didn't uh, we didn't really keep that sanctuary a sanctuary quote unquote because we went into it during hunting season tried to shoot some deer but 
it was a learning experience because what I learned is it really wasn't a sanctuary. We weren't holding deer, and that's just because of the overhunting, overuse, and so on and so forth. So hopefully that makes sense. It's uh, it's kind of hard to hard to describe until you actually see it. So what I was really referring to is that properties are meant to be sanctuaries, not just a section of your of your property. You think about any place. I was just uh, I was just at a sporting clays place today, and uh, we, were, we were shooting around sporting clays. Which, by the way, I don't know how people shoot those over under shotguns. I wanted to try a different shotgun because I don't have any fancy shotguns. And of course, you can rent these nice, you know, probably fifteen hundred dollar plus Beretta shotguns. And my uh, shooting a hundred rounds, my cheekbone. I feel like I was in a boxing match, but they only hit the right side of my face. But I did well. But anyway, as we're walking around this course where there's people everywhere and we're shooting and blasting away, we saw tons and tons of deer and not just doe and fawns. We saw some buck that were moving through this area 20 to 30 yards off of this property. And, you know, we're blasting away, making noise. There was actually one station where we were shooting right next to the deer and they just watched it and they got so used to it. And you think... Well, how can those deer be okay with that, but they're not okay with you hunting on your property and they don't tolerate that? And the fact of the matter is, they're, nobody hunts that property. You're not allowed to hunt that property. They're not getting shot at. There's certain areas where they get used to those people associating with it, and they know that they can go right up, and they're never going to have any kind of danger influenced. And with a hunting property, you can't do that because... If they get that close to you, at some point, they're going to get an arrow flung at them or they're going to get shot at. So it just it just doesn't happen. So think about that concept of that property being a sanctuary and where those deer feel safe and secure. I'm really talking about maximizing the entire property as much as possible. So we talked about that last week, and I'm kind of going on a tangent now, but what I'm really getting into now is your sanctuaries should include your food plots. Now think about that for a second. Do you consider your food plots on your property or your food sources as part of a sanctuary? Most people would answer that question with no, because they're hunting on food plots. And it's going to lead us into today's topic. And today's topic is food and food on all small hunting properties. Now, it's pretty obvious, and I'd be beating a dead horse to say, oh, you need to have food on your property because everything needs food. You know, management, and you can read articles and listen to other people, and they're all right. You need food, cover, and water to, to sustain life, and it's pretty much a, a staple of, of habitat, property management, and setting up for hunting. You've, you've heard that pounded into your head. Now, some properties, don't get me wrong, there are properties that can get away with only having cover in the neighborhood, and that's typically properties that have a lot of food on the surrounding areas, and the, the neighborhood hunting pressure allows it that you know deer are going to be staying on that property that has the, the main cover sources, and you, know, you can have consistent hunting. But I, I think 95% or more of properties... They need to have their own consistent and sustainable food source. And a big part of that is food plots, and that's mainly what we're going to talk about today. But uh, just, to, just to make note, food sources need to be diverse, okay? You can't be relying. There's so many places, so many people that talk about, well, I have oaks and I have acorns, or I've got you know, this natural food source, or I've got this browse or stuff, I, I have, that's good enough. And it, it's really not. If you believe that, you're either, your standards either are different than somebody who's looking for the top end, and that's fine. I'm not saying that to be offensive. I'm just saying the goals that we talked about setting last week when it comes to setting a property up, maybe the goals are slightly different or maybe they're a little bit lower standard than trying to shoot the absolute best buck in the neighborhood. But you need to have diverse and consistent, sustainable food sources throughout the fall and throughout the hunting season. So before we get too crazy into food plots, food plot strategies, and the importance of food plot programs, 
we need to have diverse diversity of food on the property, and that does include mass crops. That includes browse. That includes native vegetation. And tune in here in the near future for one of the upcoming episodes because as this one we're going to be talking about food and emphasizing food plots the next episode is going to cover cover and with that cover is going to be native browse and management of native vegetation and that's they they go hand in hand but food types are going to dictate movement on your property The placement of food is what is going to allow deer to move through your property and create hunting access or hunting opportunity. If you coincide food placement with the access we discussed in last week's episode as the foundation, really the food is the next step. That's that's. You're, you're framing the house. So last week with the access, we have the foundation. This week, we're framing the whole place. I mean, it's it's like the nuts and bolts and the structure. So anyway, let's let's talk a little bit about food plots and why food plot programs, how food plot programs need to be designed, where they need to go. So I'm going to make a statement here that's I think is pretty important and something that's good to think about. It is arguably the most important habitat or property improvement you make. Now, you know, we talked about the foundation last week, but this week when it comes to a food plot and private land, if you have private land and you are not planting a food plot, I think you could probably do just as good of hunting or have the, the, the same level of sightings and success as you could on public land. That's how important it is to me because on public land, I'm not saying that it's not tough. I'm not saying you don't have to put your work into it because anybody who hunts public land hard knows they got to put a lot of hard work into it to go and find those deer. But if you put the effort into that and find the food sources on public land and put it all together for a line of movement to hunt, I think you can be just as successful as you could on your private land that you're not planting food plots. In fact... I would rather hunt public land because let's say you've got a hundred acre property that you're that you're tinkering with three other family members. If you're in a sense competing with three other family members and you have hunting pressure confined to that small border versus the millions of public land acres here in Pennsylvania, you actually, in my opinion, are at a disadvantage because you don't have consistent food, you don't have consistent movement, and therefore it's sporadic, and the hunting pressure is hard. Now, you can hunt four people on 100 acres if you do it smart and have your hunting pressure kept in check, and that's a whole nother episode. But just keep that in mind and just think about that. That's how important food plot programs are. Now, I will put a little disclaimer. Food plots can be the worst improvement that you make on a property because for the same reason that they're attractive to deer, they're attractive to hunters. It's really hard to keep yourself from going and sitting on a stand on a food plot consistently. And why wouldn't you want to sit on that food plot? You've put your time, money, sweat equity into that you want to sit on it because it's usually a green, attractive thing. I've met with a lot of people and discussed food plots and had a lot of people tell me over the years that food plots are not that valuable and they're not that good because they're not seeing the deer on them. They're not seeing that consistent movement. There's two reasons for that, in my opinion. Number one, the food source is not diverse and doesn't have you don't have enough tonnage to hold their attention throughout a certain period of time. And number two is the sheer fact that they're overhunting those food plots. So earlier I said your food on your property needs to be diverse. And we said mast, browse, native vegetation, and food plots, you know, grazing types of, of plant species. Well, when it comes to that diversity, you got to have diversity on your food plots in, in their food plots as well. One species will not hold season-long attraction on your property. It just won't happen. There, there's there's not a single species. There's a lot of good single species out there, 
uh, there's a lot of marketed plants that, you know, this is the best plot. And there's a lot of people who will tell you this is the best food plot on the face of the earth. And while they might have probable reason for that, it's just based on the experiences that they've used in that one specific species and what's going on in that general neighborhood around them. You know, it's it's not a one-size-fits-all on all properties. You know, whitetails and the whitetail habitat is so diverse that what works in, say, northern Pennsylvania could be completely different than what works in southern or western Pennsylvania, you know, whatever. Um, one of the species that I think I hear so much attraction about or, or so much popularity is corn. Uh, the second one probably to corn is clover. And don't get me wrong, they are fantastic. And if I was, and I'm speaking from my own personal experiences, I am slighted towards clover because it does produce a lot. It's a perennial, you know, they're, they're not too hard to manage and you can produce a pretty good amount of tonnage and it is a very attractive food source. But you know, we're going to talk here in a little bit about peak attraction and maximizing that attraction from the beginning of the season to the end of the season. But the other thing is you want maximum tonnage too. So one thing you need to know is, and if you don't know this already, it, clovers, you know, they're perennials. They come back on a yearly, yearly basis. Perennials do not have the potential to have maximum tonnage. They, they don't have overall yield that an annual plant has and there's a reason for that annual plants that you plant every single year like your fall blends of brassicas and cereal grains and yada 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 or soybeans that plant goes through one life cycle and its goal is to produce as much vegetation as possible that way it can get into its reproductive phases and it can reproduce and create as much seed as possible so that that seed goes into the soil and it reproduces again and repeats that life cycle. So therefore, it's putting all its energy into one year while, you know, perennials are deep rooted and they take longer. So keep that in mind when you're thinking about how much food you actually need. If you're relying on just clover and you have a pretty decent amount of of food, right off the bat, you're not producing as much tonnage as you possibly could. Um... There's a lot of good advice, too, that you need to have year-round food. And I say it's good advice because it's acceptable in certain parts of deer's home range and certain properties. It's dependent on what type of resources you have, what you're willing to spend. Summer food is not a bad thing. But when you're talking about the properties where you and I spend a lot of time hunting, 40 acres, 100 acres, 150, maybe 300 acres. 300 acres might sound big, but in the grand scheme of things, it's relatively small in the world of whitetails. And you can go broke in Pennsylvania with the deer herd that we have trying to feed them all year long. Uh, you, You would have to have some really, really deep pockets. And I'll speak for myself that that's just not the case. But if you put your resources into the right times, you can be successful if you're willing to put something out. And the way you do that is fall food. And there's a couple reasons why you want to prioritize. You know, summer food is okay, but you can't have your, your total emphasis on that. There's, there's three big reasons, in my opinion, why you want to emphasize food for the fall. And this, this goes both ways for food plots as well as your your overall native habitat base, but we're, we're sticking with food plots right now. Number one, attraction for hunting. If you have the most in fall, when it's hunting season, it's pretty obvious that that should be the most attractive, right? And that's that's purely a selfish desire and a selfish interest for hunting. But there's a couple of biological reasons why I think that's important on your small property. Number two Fall and winter, and this here here we go with a little bit of science. Fall and winter is the lowest hole in the bucket for food availability. When you got spring and summer and the warm growing season, you've got all those native plants that are growing plentiful. The soil is warm. It's a, it's a time of abundance. There's all kinds of grasses and forbs and native browse that are very palatable and they're very attractive 
you know, for instance, ragweed and, and there's there's so many spokeweeds, there's so many species that they have 18 to 20% crude protein, high digestibility. It's what deer want to be eating that time of year. Now, I'm not saying that you can't do positive things by adding to that, but when you're talking about trying to hold deer in your fall property, it's, it's a little bit better that way. The third reason is when you have food in abundance in the fall, you have holding ability on your property, and this is a big one. People often say you are not able to, you can't make a difference on on the local deer herd and the age structure and getting the best buck in the neighborhood on small properties. And it's, I I think you can because having daylight attraction and keeping your deer on your property in daylight hours is not allowing them to go off of your property and be open to getting shot by neighbors getting hit by cars at certain times. You know, if the, the, the number one cause of deer death is getting killed. You know, if you have a goal that you want to see more, you know, three and four-year-old bucks, let's say you've got a lot of one-and-a-half and two-and-a-half-year-old deer in your neighborhood, and you want to see it go to the next level, keeping deer on your property and hunting it appropriately that they want to bed and move on your property in the afternoon going to that afternoon food plot food source you created then after dark they disperse that's keeping them safe it's like almost putting a fence up without a fence it's the attraction they need they're looking for that food that cover that water and the security so hopefully that gives you a little bit of an idea but if you maximize your fall tonnage from the beginning of the season to the end of the season you're widening your horizon of or widening the potential for those deer to make it through to the next age class. That two-year-old buck wants a secure location to feed and, and breed and do all those things. And you can't encompass his whole three-mile home range. You know, Penn State's done a lot of great research where three three square miles, which think about that, a square mile is 640 acres. And some of that research done in the state, three square miles, that's a huge home range. But the older a deer gets, and there's a lot of research that supports this, the older they get, the smaller their home range sometimes shrinks. But it also shrinks during daylight hours. They don't move as much daylight. I mean, if they moved a lot in daylight, they get killed. That's how deer die. They're moving in daylight. Hunters see them, they kill them. If you can have the best daylight activity on your property that you're not chasing and it has all the goodies that they need, which is including fall food, you're in the money for that next age class. So I kind of went on a little bit of a tangent there, but it's just that important. And it's one of the things that gets so overlooked when you're talking about making a difference on a small parcel. So I get, uh, I've gotten bashed in the past or, you know, just have arguments with, with other people that talk about how important it is to maximize minerals and fall, or uh, I'm sorry, fall, summer food, you know, talking about maybe planting in April, May, planting soybeans or having a certain percentage of clover. And that's because they want to have high protein. It's, you know, high phosphorus and calcium that's going to help with antler development and in, in deer and it's going to produce better quality milk and that's all good things i'm not saying that those are bad things when you look at the overall structure of pennsylvania woods and deer habitat we've got a lot of crops that are going in parts of the state that deer have access to and even in the big woods you know we might not have quite the abundances in 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 northern pennsylvania as in southern pennsylvania and you might not have the same species but you're still in the growing season you still have access to enough forage, generally speaking, to support the deer herd. Maybe they're not going to be adding as many inches of antler on, but what I'm getting at, I really don't care how many inches of antler we put on a two and a half year old buck if we're not doing all the things to keep him on your property in daylight hours during the fall. Because if he's getting all those goodies on your property and then moving off because you don't have the attraction in fall, and he gets killed as a two-year-old, how much did that extra inches of antler help you? And, you know, I, I don't 
I'd love to see, I love to see more inches antler. I love to see deer growing to their maximum potential, but the number one growth in antlers is age. You know, we got to get them to that age class to show their maximum potential. You don't even know what that deer's going to be until he gets to that oldest age class. I know I'm kind of beating a dead horse and I going on tangents here, but it's just, it's real important to me. And I've seen the benefits of food plot programs and what they can do. And what I want to get into now is talking a little bit about species specifically. You know, we circ- we're going to circle back a little bit. We talked about it earlier about how one species can't do it all. So let- let's talk about those ones that are really attractive in the hunting world. Clover is very attractive when it comes to planting and maintaining as a food plot. Clover's peak attraction is when the soil gets up to optimum temperature, somewhere in the mid-40s to low-50s, it starts to green up. Very attractive in uh, that, you know, sometime between March and April and comes all the way through until the soil gets up to about 55, 60 degrees when you start to have those annual plants growing and then they can switch off of that. And then the second time that clover is extremely attractive is sometime in that August, September, maybe into early October, when all the native vegetation that they switch to in spring starts to die off, become less palatable, clover gets some fall rains and it'll bounce back and it'll be a nice, lush, attractive food source. So those are the best times. I'm not saying deer won't go into your your clover plots November, December. They will if it's the best thing in the area. There's other things we can be planting. Same thing, corn. Corn gets pretty attractive when the silt starts to come out. You know, deer will eat corn from the time it's planted if it's the best thing that's in the area. I've seen some incredible deer damage in some of the the farmer's properties that I I work on as an agronomist. And, you know, see some very bad devastation before we even, you know, get to tassel and beyond. But when you get to tassel, deer start eating uh, eating silts. They'll eat uh, eat the tops of the plants, the, the most succulent part of the plant. And it'll kind of dampen off after those reproductive phases. But once you get into the dough and the hard stages, you know, the later it gets in and the the cold starts to amp up and, you know, a lot of the native food around starts to dwindle, you know, November into December and January. If it's around, corn's very attractive. And that's why I think it gets so much attraction as, you know, as hunters because there's a lot of corn planted in you know, relatively, there's a lot of corn planted in Pennsylvania. A lot of people see that, so automatically they gravitate towards corn as being the best food plot. And it is good, and if I had the space on my property to put it, I would. Unfortunately, I don't. So let's talk a couple other plants. Uh, Soybeans. Soybeans are really, really attractive when they're in their vegetative stages. Um, Soybeans, you know, have different groups of maturities. So some of them have very short windows of time where they go through vegetative stages till reproductive and then some of them have really long vegetative stages until they get to reproductive stages um, the longer the vegetative the more attractive it is um, for a longer period of time and then of course when they you know have pods if there's pods left over in in late winter that's an attractive carbohydrate that deer will go to but you're talking about uh, a peak and then a dip off and then it peaks back up. And a lot of the time, if they're planted in April and May, they go through those reproductive phases and they start damping off sometime in October, November when it's the best, you know, the, the, the prime part of hunting season. So in my opinion, one plant isn't doing it all, especially for a small property. Plus small food plots only in soybeans can get annihilated that there's nothing left over and you have to replant them in fall anyway. So keeping on, brassicas are a great one. Brassicas, a lot of the time, will see a traction peak um, into October and November. You know, I, I don't always see it. You know, the the myth, in my opinion, is that you get a frost, you're going to have deer hitting those brassicas. And I find it that once it's the most palatable thing in the area, that's going to be the most attractive food plot. That might be in October, that might be November, that might be December, depending on the year, available food, and so on and so forth. Cereal grains, rye, wheat, those are things that typically are attractive sometime mid to late November and until they stop actively growing or they're eating down to nothing. And, you know, 
I go into this because you got some stuff we talked about that you're probably thinking, man, that's a glamour crop. That's the stuff I love. I've planted it for years and I love it. And you got some stuff that's not too glamorous. You know, the one that is so unattractive in the hunting world and in the hunting industry is just putting wheat and rye out. And there's a reason for that. Number one, it doesn't have near the protein digestibility, all that stuff of some of these other plants. But when you're talking about what a deer needs throughout hunting season, you get into November, December, rye and wheat grow down. Rye grows down as low as 37 degrees soil temperatures. It will be actively grown. It's not actively growing fast, but it's the only green vegetation with moisture in it that has nutrients in it. Like, you know, think about it, guys. When when it's actively grown, it's moving nutrients from the soil into the plant. And then that plant that has those active nutrients moving goes to that animal. And that's what's most attractive. So if it's the only thing in the neighborhood in December and you're deer hunting, you have a dynamite food source. So what I'm getting at is all of these have peak times. Maybe people have said clover's the best because they've killed a lot of good deer at certain parts of the season on clover or corn or whatever that is. They all are. I'm, I'm not bashing anyone. What I'm getting at is plant them all. Plant them all because if you would put it on a graph, you know, put it on a, on a linear graph 12 months out of the year from January to December and when they peak the most, you plant all of them, you're going to have on your property from August through January, basically whenever the deer season starts, you will have something on your property that is peaking at all times, making it those making it that those deer have a consistent food source to go to on a main on a, a routine basis which makes predictable hunting and allows them to do all those other things we talked about get to the next age class and have quality food in the harshest part of the year so there's my tangent on food species now one thing i will say is you know we talked about greens and grains there i prefer planting greens so clovers, chicories, brassicas, soybeans, you know, late planted peas, cereals. I, I prefer having those on my property and having that as my base and not having corn and soybeans, you know, grains as my base. I, I see grains as a supplement. It's like the icing to the cake, that absolute attraction. If you can have that at that peak time. You know, that's fantastic because I think we all know, or a lot of us know, if we've ever hunted on cut corn fields, cut bean fields, or fields that have some standing grain, certain times of the year, there's nothing more attractive than it. You know, deer will come from a long way for that grain. But it's, again, small periods. The green, you know, deer want to have moisture from their vegetation. You know, a lot of the moisture deer gets is coming from the plants that it eats. So having green, moisture-filled delicious food you know they're going to go to that on a routine basis and you know grain is a supplement i find a lot of properties if you're relying heavily on just grains and you have small plots you know keep in mind where i'm coming from on the main property that i'm hunting it's it's 100 wooded and every food plot that is on that property has been created with equipment and there's properties where you've got the complete opposite where you've got 50 percent farmland and you've got a lot of ag in the area, and you can let a lot of grain stand. You know, if you can let enough grain stand that it will last through hunting season, by all means, do it. And all I'm saying is you would supplement that food plot program better if you also have greens in that location. You're getting the best of both worlds. Now, one of the most important things with food plot programs, and I learned this a hard way too, I truly believe to maximize property efficiency you need to plant the same food plot program in every location and there's a lot of controversy over what a plot is designed for where they go what they need to be you know you might have food uh, a food plot could be something as simple as a small trail that has clover planted on it that is a food plot but it that that type of food plot might be something that is steering deer in a direction you want them to go 
and you might have a plot on your property that's like ours where you clear it out and you have an opening you create a, a field so to speak and it, it's holding those deer what's happening is they're coming from the cover woody browse mass crop food that we're going to talk about next week they're coming from that and going to that green succulent vegetation that we just talked about why that's so important and you're holding them in there in that afternoon, and then they're probably going out and dispersing, you know, elsewhere off of your property borders at another time. If you've got a lot of ag in the neighborhood, that's how they'll probably use it. It's like holding those deer. It's like stopping them for a portion of time. Then they'll go out and, you know, eat alfalfa, eat corn, eat beans, eat whatever in the neighborhood. Now, in, you know, heavily wooded, no ag around, it's a little bit of a different story. You know, that might be the best food source in the area. They'll be there all night. Then you've got to talk about how you want to manage those species. Generally, what I do is try to use utilization cages and see how many deer are using that plot and how much food is lasting throughout the season. You know, if, you're, if your utilization cage is three feet tall and your plots are lip high, the, you know, end of October, you know, you got to find a way to get more food on that property and try to ease the pressure off so it lasts. But back on to keeping those plots in the same location. So keeping plots in the same location is important because we talked about plant species peaking in attraction in the same, at, at different times. You know, clover might peak at you know, September, October, and cereal rye in December and January, you know, whatever that is, we, we went through that already. If you have them in different locations, it's going to make the hunting a little bit harder to predict. Deer movement could be hot in one plot for two weeks. Then by the time you go pull cameras and, you know, maybe you're watching cell cameras or you're not using cameras at all, you're just reading sign and going and hunting your property, you might miss opportune times to hunt that location. Also, if you have two-week span where it's the most attractive food source on your property, it's easy to overhunt it. If you overhunt it, you chase deer, might make them harder to hunt the rest of the season. You're kind of going with a, with a sprint approach. You're going to the best location, the best spot. If you don't connect, then it's going to make it harder the next time you want to go out. You know, you're treating it like a marathon going in little by little until you finally find success. Having the same food in every plot is going to keep the same deer movement day after day until that food source depletes. The idea is that when one of the most attractive things becomes no longer palatable or is no longer in abundance, they can move over to the next species. And it allows you to never clean the table. And that's really, really important when it comes to having attraction on your property. Oh, man. I feel like it's just a never-ending tangent when it comes to food plots. I mean, you guys, if, if you're doing this, you've heard so many podcasts, read articles, watched videos. And it is a never-ending thing. I'm trying to give you perspective that really does work in these high-pressure situations in PA or other states that are high-hunting pressure. One of the biggest things that I think fails with food plots is the wrong location and the wrong location being somewhere where you're either driving past or walking past and you're chasing deer on a regular basis or you're, you're creating a pattern of deer patterning you. You know, back to the beginning, I said your plots need to be sanctuaries. Sanctuaries. They can't see you, hear you, or smell you. That includes whether you're hunting on the plots or you're not hunting on your plots and you're trying to navigate around your property and you have to go past the food plot. So I talk, said earlier that food plots can be the worst habitat improvement you make. And the reason for that is hunting pressure and your, your desire to go hunt that. Think about this. Should you hunt your food plots? Just let that soak in. Should you hunt on your food plots? My initial reaction is yes, you should. Put all that time and money and effort. You should hunt your plots. But if you cannot figure out how to get into that plot and get out of that plot without spooking deer. And if you're sitting on that plot and deer are busting you because they're picking you off in your stand location, or if you're in a, a wooded, wooded section of 
land with an opening and you're getting swirling winds and those deer come into that plot and smell you, you need to reevaluate how you are hunting that property. Because hunting that plot, educating the deer, you're completely lost all hope for the rest of the season and creating a property that's going to get deer to the next age class and also just create a property that meets all your other goals, trying to harvest a good deer, have good deer sightings, so on and so forth. I think one of the most important things you need to do is you need to have screening, whether that's a form of annual screening, whether that's a form of native vegetation, switchgrass. I've used screening of trees and cut over trees and and piles to some extent i try not to get too carried away you can do it in some situations but things that you can hide behind and move around accessing your stand that would be on the plot or accessing around the plot that you're not chasing them after dark so that's a big one now one concept that i really like to do when it's possible and i I think it's important when you think about location of a plot you know let's say you take a property that is 40 acres. It's a it's a perfect square. That's about 440 yards wide and 440 yards long. And you put a four-acre food plot right in the middle of it. So if you do that, and it's a, it's a perfect circle, and then you extend from the edge of that food plot in the middle of the property, and you extend to your border, you have 145 yards until you reach a border. And Placing that plot square in the middle, maybe on some properties it works, but on some properties, and I think a lot of properties, it's bad because you're creating less space for you to navigate, and you're also creating less space for deer to call theirs all times without seeing you, hearing you, or smelling you. And it's lastly, it's giving very few locations for a buck to feel secure because I do find that for a big bulk of the season, buck do want solitude they want to have their own bedding location they don't want to be bothered by the kids you know the 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 joke and analogy i make all the time is think about christmas or a holiday event when you get together with the family you know we get together at the dinner table where we say a prayer we have a meal we we share things we're, we're talking back and forth with everybody but there gets to a certain point in the evening that the guys We'll go to the other room. They'll go downstairs in the man cave. They'll go watch a football game. They'll get away from the women and the kids. And I don't mean that to be rude. I'm just saying it's true that they want a little bit of solitude. Deer are the same. It's the same concept. There's a portion of the rut and breeding that you're going to want to hunt different patterns. And that's a whole other spiel of of hunting strategy. I'm talking uh, strictly property setup and property management have room for deer, for buck, the buck you're after, to call his own. If everything is taken up by doe and fawns, you're going to have limited room. One simple way to do that is have enough room on your property. You know, you can have food plots toward the edges of your property to a certain extent as long as you can get around them and you're not designing those plots in a direction that's steering deer onto a neighbor's property and they can shoot them really easily. So, Again, a little bit conceptual. I don't get too carried away with the shape of plots and designing of plots. Sometimes you can get that to work and steer deer in for a, a nice easy bow shot. Or, you know, it's pretty easy with a gun where you can sit from a distance and wait till deer come out and you shoot them with a gun. But the, the design of the plot isn't as important to me as far as steering deer as it is making sure that you set the plot up that you can get around it and you also set it up that you have stand locations leading to and from that food source. And that's a whole other podcast and I think I'm about at the point where I need to wrap this up because I beat a dead horse with a lot of this stuff. I know it's probably, this is probably not one of the most fun podcasts for people to listen to because it's probably things they've heard, you know, you guys have heard this to some extent, maybe not from me, but I think there's some things that will challenge you in the way you're accessing your property, the way your food plot program is laid out. Hopefully that's giving you a little bit of conceptual ideas. So, again, we talked about the having a, a, a greater depth 
of cover or a greater distance of cover on your property, that's going to lead us well into the next episode of this series. So the next episode, um, I'll give you a little sneak peek. I have uh, have a, a guest coming that's going to be discussing some great forestry practices, invasive species management, and putting that all together to promote quality native vegetation, quality browse that is five feet and under, which is also going to be cover. So we'll talk a little bit about what you're looking for, how you're looking for it, things you can be doing when it fits in the right property type. You know, there's we've got properties in the northern settings where you might not need to do hinge cutting. You might not just you might just need to reduce the amount of canopy. Where, you know, flip that down to a property where it's a lot of mixed ag and there's not a lot of cover. You might need immediate cover where a hinge cut's good or Maybe you've got a lot of invasive species that need to be managed so you can promote native brows. So we're going to go into a little bit more detail about that. Um, and we got somebody who's way better at discussing specific forestry practices than myself. And you, you'll get to hear somebody different than me rambling for the past time, uh, past past 50 minutes like we did today. But Food is so important, guys. I just cannot stress it enough. And last thing I'm going to leave you with, it's not cheap. You know, it's easy for, you know, different people to point fingers and say, oh, he's got big pockets. You know, he's spending all kinds of money and, and you know, he can do this and do that. Well, you know, everybody likes to point fingers. The grass is always greener on the other side and somebody's always doing something that you don't like. And, and <laughs> that's just the way hunting is. We're it's one of the most egotistical things there are, but all I'm all I'm telling you is if you have a private piece of land and you want to make it better and you want to invest, I'm not telling you that you need to spend every hard-earned dollar you make and break the bank and make your wife go crazy at you, but I am telling you if you plan your resources accordingly, you can have a fantastic food plot program and have a good amount of acres. I'm not talking about a quarter acre plot on your property that's 40 acres. I'm talking maybe having two, three, four, five acres. It is important. And maybe it's something you need to build over in a 10-year period. Maybe it's something that you can do and turn around this year just because you have the right openings. You know, I said that earlier, not every opening needs to be planted. It needs to be utilized for your hunting access as well as good quality food plot programs. So anyway, that's all I got. Kind of rambled a lot, but I think we talked about some important things, and it's one of those things that you can start looking at now. Go out, look where deer are moving through your property, look for the potential to create a new opening or maybe design a food plot location a little bit different. Maybe you have a food plot, but the design of it and shape of it or you don't have the screening you need, whatever that is, you can figure that out now. Now's a great time to see the woods in a naked form. No no uh, leaves in the trees. You know, it's what deer probably see most of the time throughout the growing season. And it's a, it's a great time to think about how thick is your property, how do you access, all that good stuff. So, again, thanks for tuning in. And uh, we'll try to mix it up here. We're going to have a couple other episodes non-related. You know, I don't want to make it just for these private land guys, these crazy, crazy deer you know, property managers, you know, like myself, I'll have some other exciting things in the outdoor world, but, uh, I'm still fresh in deer, man. I'm still thinking about them. I'm still amped up, ready to go hunting. I got three days left the season when this is, when this is, uh, Aaron, I still got three days and I'm hoping I can still make something happen. If not on to the next phases for next year. So thanks again, guys. We'll see you next week.